Hi there, House Culture listener. If you enjoy this episode or have enjoyed listening to other episodes in our series, please support and donate to us through the Acast Supporter feature. All donations will help us create the content that you love listening to. You can decide how much you give and there is no regular commitment. So it could be a one-off and every now and then or once every time you listen. It's really up to you. Click on the supporter link in the episode description and with Google or Apple Pay, it will take you less than 30 seconds to make your contribution. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Hi, I'm Gordon Mack, and you're listening to the House Culture Podcast. House Culture. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the House Culture Podcast. I'm your host and managing editor at House Culture, Matt Rouse. As always, thanks for joining us, downloading, streaming, however it is you listen to your podcasts. For those who are listening for the first time and don't know who we are or what we stand for, we at House Culture are a group, a gang, a collective of house music fans who have come together through the mutual love of the beat to celebrate the spirit of house music. You can follow us day to day on our Instagram feed at housecultureNet, but what we do this podcast is sit down with some of the most iconic characters from the scene for a candid chat to discover how they fell in love with the music and how it has shaped their life. In this episode, we chat with Gordon Mack, pirate radio legend, as he's the guy that set up KISS FM in London back in the day. As you'll hear in this podcast, Gordon talks about his musical love of all things soulful. Motown and stuff like that, and people go, oh, what are you playing with black stuff for? And I was like, no, this is really wicked. And throughout my whole life, I love this music, and it was the underdog. How determined he was to share this music with an audience. I wanted to do, I wanted to be on radio, I wanted to, what a way to spread my music to everyone. The logistics of setting up KISS FM as a pirate station. We, we went and found a squat to stay in, and then with the engineer, we found a place to put the aerial. Then it was about recruiting the DJs. And the embarrassment of riches in terms of genre that the original KISS FM DJs had available to them at the time. At the beginning of the 80s, you had the leftovers from the disco then you had electro you had hip-hop you had rare groove and then you had this soulful house type music then you had rave then you had acid then you had balearic all of this all came in that 10 years so lock down your aerial and prepare yourself for some original pirate material yeah i have always wanted to say that as we're in conversation with gordon mack culture 
start those questions rolling at me. Gordon, uh, well, thanks for making time for us at House Culture, as well as making some room for us here at the My Soul Station, which is your current baby, something we'll talk about later. Uh, obviously, you were the one of the founders of KISS FM, first as a pirate station and later as a fully licensed station. Mm-hmm. Um, if we rewind to way before that, okay. in terms of your passion for music, where did you first discover that and what was the catalyst that got you into, <laughs> into music initially? I think uh, I came from a very musical family. So um, my mum and dad um, split up. The father, the man that fathered me, they split up very early. So my mum was um, very good on love songs. So (laughs) I I grew up in a house with loads and loads and loads of, um, you know, Dionne Warwick and Aretha Franklin and sort of um, Carole King and all songs, you know, songs that... And a lot of them are heartbreak songs, but kind of a, a lots of songs. And I loved melodies and some uh, great words and stuff like that as I was growing up. So, you know, kind of I was born 1960 down Wolf Road. Um, definitely wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth. Um, and um, I, I was introduced to it by my mum, really. And then when I was about eight years old, my cousin, uh, two things happened. She got. She started going out of a skinhead from Chelsea Football Club, and they were into reggae. And so all of a sudden, my whole world, because she was my one of my biggest influences, was surrounded by reggae and um, Motown. And so I, I went through the whole um, blue beat and the scar and the, you know the kind of the original reggae, the Trojan and tighten ups and and that was my. A huge great influence because she was such a kind of big influence in that, in my days back then because she was about five years older so she was kind of you know and she was going out with this skinhead who was into the reggae and kind of because that's what skinheads were into originally and um so she, that was a that was an influence and i'd had this soulful influence because my mum had been listening to dion warwick and everything else so it, the whole house was filled with that and then uh, my mum remarried and uh, somebody that his favourite album was The Equals, um, Baby Come Back and stuff like that. And it was all very soulful and I was just exposed to it all then. And then that same year, <laughs> we went to... Um, so what, what year was this? This is 1968, 69. And it's such an influential time for me because uh, my cousin and my nan, and we all went to, um, oh goodness me, what's it called? Uh, uh, Butlins in Bognor Regis. And she sneaked me out the window one night, take me to the disco on the <laughs> and I stood in this disco on the uh, Butlin's camp. And it was it was dark and there was flashing lights and there was loud music and everyone was dancing and everyone's going and I went, This is what I, this is oh, this is my Shangri-La. This is this is it. And um so I came home from that holiday um and set up my own little disco. Uh, my my grandpa, my pop, he went mental at me because I had uh, one one little light fitting in the middle of the room. And I had, you know, used to get the, the double extenders, and I had about four of them all all joined together with different coloured bulbs on and stuff. He went absolutely mental, but I, that was my that that was it. I was I just loved music and seeing people dance and flashing lights and the whole thing of it. <laughs> That's what ruined my life, my mum said. <laughs> Until I actually done well. <laughs> yeah. So you were always passionate about that music. So you always yeah. wanted to, you were happy to bring it to other people rather than just like a personal thing. You actually wanted to spread the love for that. Well, because I, back in back in those days, I, ha- I had this real passion for 
black music, soul music, um, you know, which, which, had, which had been kind of helped by the kind of the Motown influences, the reggae and what. And so I was the weird kid. When I was, by the time, you know, I started DJing um, in... Well, I, start, I say I started DJing. My first DJ job was by accident when I was, uh, was a, um, a church event um, in 1972, Halloween 1972. And uh, the DJ never turned up. And it was a fundraiser for the local church. My mum and dad went to the local church. And um, so we went to the church and kind of I was 12 years old and um, the, the DJ never turned up. And so I said, I can, I'll do it, I'll do it, because I've been going to do my Saturday, Saturday morning um, uh, job, which was in a toy shop, and going and buying my records, and I'd nicked all my cousin's records by this point, you know, she, <laughs> I'd nicked all of her reggae records, I had all the Motown records, I had everything. And so they found a couple of record decks and put it through the old tannoy system in the church, and that, that was my first ever DJ job on Halloween in 1972. And... I, I absolutely hated it because, you know, I kept going, well, you're supposed to talk, DJs talk. And every time a record finished, I went up to the microphone and I was going to say something and then I bottled out and played another record. And, and it was the most stressful time, but I absolutely loved it. It was like, it was this new bug which just got me. And um, and that was it. I was I was then I was then sold. I was, um, I was absolutely suckered into it. I talked to the vicar. I got contracts out of him for a year. And I found my diaries a while ago, and um, I was being paid two pounds a gig. Two pounds. <laughs> two pounds. Well, this is 1972, 1973. Yeah. And um, so I'd done a year's thing with him, and then I I got my um, my dad, because my mum had remarried, and uh, she remarried this amazing man who he he stood going tour for me. He, I, I sold everything that I had to him, <laughs> and then he stood going tour for me for his two hundred pound disco unit which was two record decks, uh, Garrard or whatever record decks, and a little mixer. And um, and I think it's about 200 watts amplifier and 200 watt amp, uh, speakers or whatever. And that was my first ever Gordon Max uh, mobile disco. And I went and done all of these. Uh, uh, wedi- I'd play anyway. I mean, you know, yeah. oh, as the fridge opened and the light came on, I'd be playing. Yay, <laughs> yay. Um, but I was one of the weird kids at school because I liked, I liked black music. And all the others were into Led Zeppelin, Deep Purple, and it was very rocky back in the kind of 70s. And they were all getting off on their kind of air guitars. And I, and I was the weird white kid at the back that kind of liked listening to um, Fatback Band, Yummy Yummy, and, and um, all of this kind of James Brown. And and it was kind of, and you know, all the soulful stuff, all the kind of the shy lights and the Motown tracks. And and I was the weird kid that kind of was at the back and kind of, I was like, oh, I saw that music. Now I actually quite like some of it, some progressive rock band, but um, not so lots. <laughs> but so that's, that's kind of, uh, that's how I got into it. That was, that was my kind of defining moment was yeah. at that Butlin's disco. Yeah. And um, then I used, to, I used to do my Saturday job and listen to radio every morning. And what every sta- morning, what station was it? Well, it was Radio time. One. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think there was anything else. The other thing that my mum set this all up as well because she gave me when she at Christmas one year, she got a new transistor radio, and she gave me her old one that the back was falling off and being strapped on with a bit of elastic band, and she gave me that, and I used to have it on day and night. If I was at home and not at school, whatever. I used to have that radio on. I used to listen to the radio. I used to listen to 
the pirates you know this is going back to about 65 60 um 65 66 it's around that time that she goes to me and so i was listening to kind of uh, the radio and these um pirate stations as they're called then and also then when radio one came on radio one and kind of i, I I just used to listen to Radio 1. When, when I got my Sassy job, I used to listen to it every Sassy morning. Um, Ed Stewpot, first of all, with the kids' um, show. Then it'd be Kenny Everett, who was just one of the most influential DJs ever. Um, DLT and Emperor Roscoe. And, you know, I used to listen to all these different uh, DJs. And what was them. the music that you were into at the time? Was that being represented on Radio 1? No. no. It's <laughs> just of, more the personalities you were into. rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> When you think of it, I mean, it was, it was just homogenised crap, wasn't yeah. it, really? Back so in even the at set. that point, you knew yeah. that the pirates were where it's at? Is that well, right? Well, I t- I t- what happened was, as, as time went on, so I started DJing, then kind of, I, I, I've got to the uh, fifth year of school, went to try and stay on for the sixth year, and they said, look, you really haven't been here in the third, fourth or fifth, so we're not keeping you on for the sixth. So I had to go out and get a job. And I was mainly DJing. So I was doing, when I was at school, I was doing the Royal Oak. Uh, no, not the Royal Oak. I was doing the York Tavern in York in Battersea. I was doing a couple of pubs down the Woolworth Road, because that's where I lived. I was doing a whole load of places. Plus, I was doing a, I was doing a, um, a, a youth club, plus any weddings, and also my contracts with the, um, the uh, church. So I was doing as much as I possibly could um, for, you know, kind of to be a DJ. And um, when I got the chance to actually do it and do it properly, I, I, you know, kind of, I left school and that was it. I just chucked myself into it. And I was selling, I was working at Barker's of Kensington in um, in Miss Holmes, the ladies' shoe wear. But, and these shoes were as wide as they was long. They were about triple D fittings and all that. And all these old girls with these bunions everywhere. And they, <laughs> <laughs> they used to get me a job, get me out of the house and give me my money for me to spend money on the records. And then I used to DJ. And that was it. So you left school, you were a DJ. And so how did the kind of move into, were there pirate radio stations in and around London at that time that you wanted to get involved with? Or how did that that move happen? The whole move into pirate radio really came um, in the late 70s. So I'd done that job for about a year or so, got the sack, whatever. Then I'd done a job as a uh, a trainee draftsman, because that was the only thing that I was ever good at at school, was doing uh, technical drawing. And um, then I, I was doing, around the corner so where I was working in Tooley Street, there's this pub called the Royal Oak. And I really got in with them. And then I found out that the guy that owned it, his son used to go, um, used to be friends with a girlfriend of mine. And I knew him from a, a, another area. So we became really good mates. And um, so I became resident DJ down there. Um, and so that's, that was one of my first real residences um and i used to do oh goodness me i used to do um thursday night friday lunchtime with the strippers friday <laughs> night saturday i used to go and do my mobile discos and my thing and sunday i used to do there as well wow and then what i'd done was um i got nicky holloway who was kind of he was just coming on the scene then and he couldn't drive so he used to um stay on my settee so he used to do the saturday night and I used to do a couple of nights for him during the week because he used to do a couple of clubs in the West End. So we'd done some swaps and stuff like that. And that was Nicky Holloway, and that was before he kind of discovered um, or got into the house music scene and kind of he was playing lots of Japanese imports and he was really part of the whole um, soul mafia, you know, um, Chris Hill and all of those guys. And that's really what he was into, and I was into the kind of the, the more... 
uh, soulful black stuff and all that. And but we we worked together there on at Royal Oak for a couple of years or so. And then when I left, he became resident, and then he changed it all and started hiring it off of him and started doing his, um, what was it called? It was a SOS or whatever it was, or um, whatever his club was called. And he started getting people down there like Chris Hill and all of the kind of soul mafia. Um, and he started, he'd he done really well and done that side of it. I got poached from the Royal Oak in Tooley Street because I used to do a, a Saturday afternoon, no, a Friday afternoon, a Thursday afternoon in a record shop, Red Records in Brixton. And I've done that because then you get your hands on the records straight away. So you, <laughs> you're, you work in a record shop on a Thursday and Friday afternoon, you get all the imports as they come in and you get to sort them all out. And for, uh, I think it was about a couple of years, I was doing that. And this guy used to come in every Friday and go, so what's new, Gordon? Come on, what's new? Blah, 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 blah. And I used to play in the tunes. And he came up to me one day and he went, I've never sold you who I am, but I, I own um, the Bouncing Bull, which is a reggae club in uh, Peckham. He said, but I'm going to change that. I said, I'm closing it down. I'm opening it up as a soul club, a proper black music soul club. He said, and you seem to know your A-size from your B-size. Do you want to come be my resident? So I went... Yeah, because that was my to be able to play, you know, kind of just to play soul music to people that were lovers of soul music. Because before that, I was always playing, you know, kind of my soul section it was a bit of Motown and stuff like that. And people go, oh, What are you playing with black stuff for? And I was like, No, this is really wicked. And throughout my whole life, back then, I always wanted to, I love this music. And it was the underdog. Yeah. And it was the kind of the thing that you just. I wanted everybody to hear this soul music and this soulful stuff and this black music and, you know, kind of... That was the thing that I wanted everybody to hear, reggae and all that stuff, because I'd always collected reggae as well. And so it was kind of... It was a, a real... I've got to get this out there. I've got to let people hear this. That was kind of... Well, that <laughs> went on all through my life, really. It was kind of a, a, a passion inside that I love this music. And I want everyone to hear it. Everyone's got to like it. Surely you don't like this. You, you like the scaffold or you like sort of pop music you like the sweet what the f- <laughs> <Right>. so <laughs> and that was the right moment in terms of getting the music and the audience together for yeah. you and the perfect it, it place. just well i said to him who else is gonna be working there so he said well on a friday night we're gonna have all the different um pirate djs down there okay he said on a saturday night we've got steve walsh and on a sunday night you've got paul trouble anderson and um george power and I went, well, I'm going to be working with all of this. This is my kind of, this is my goal. This is my sick list of people to meet, let alone. I was going to say, you're already aware of these guys. <laughs> oh, God, yeah, I used to follow them, I, you know, kind of. And um, all of a sudden, in that one swoop, I became the resident DJ down there. And I'd done the warm-up before and then done the bit after them. So they done the middle bit and I'd done the bit before and after. And in that one fell swoop, I managed to work with all my heroes. <laughs> I was like, kind of, I learnt a lot from them, but I also kind of, um, you know, kind of, it, it type of, they say, you know, you want to up your game, you need to play with game game uppers, as it were. Yeah, so, yeah. And that's, that was it. So that's what I'd done. And it was at that time that Pirate Radio was, there was um, LWR, JFM, Solar, Horizon, oh, there was Jazz, there was a whole load of pirates around... And I got asked to go on to uh, JFM back in 19... This is, we're coming up to about 1982, 83 now. So that's when I started at Kisses. And so I got asked to go on to Pipe Radio then. And I'd done three days, three drive-time shows a week. And I was rubbish. I, was <laughs> <laughs> I still think I'm pretty rubbish now when I do shows. But um, So I'd I done that. And that lasted 
um, until, in fact, it, 1985 was a very big year for me because all the pirate stations went off air early in the year. They all went off air to try and go for a, a community license. And Kisses shut down, which was my club, my residency, where I'd been there for three and a half, four years. And it shut down. It was like, damn. <laughs> God yeah. damn. You can swear, a better it's word. fine. <laughs> right, what the fuck is that? <laughs> this is one fucking horrible year. <laughs> so, because I lost all my fucking clubs. <laughs> so I lost my club and that was my kind of main income. And um, JFM went off air uh, to go for one of these community licenses. And the guy that ran it, he turned around and said to me, he said, he said Gordon, he said, you're not really that great at presenting and you, you really need to go to speech therapy about your, your, your accents and, you know, blah, blah, blah. He said, so, you know, if you get an opportunity to go on another station, go on one, because if we get a licence, we probably wouldn't have you on. <laughs> I was like, fucking devastated. I was like, great. Well, great year 1985 is. But it turned out to be a great year because it gave me the opportunity to start up KISS. And George Power, who I'd worked with and become quite friends with, him and Paul Anson that I'd built a really strong bond with, another guy called Tosca, and we, we all kind of worked together. And um, George went, do you fancy running a radio station? And, I, uh, and it had been something that kind of ever since listening to it, as you know, in a, a Saturday morning shop, I wanted to do, I wanted to be on yeah. radio, I wanted to, what a way to spread my music to everyone. And kind of. And um, so I said, yeah, come on, let's do it, let's do it. So we... we um, in I think it's October time we set up Kiss FM yeah. and um, it was I mean it was a pirate. <laughs> so <laughs> it was... it's early eighties London. How mm. how do you go about setting up a pirate radio station? What are the like the logistics behind that <laughs> in terms of finding somewhere to broadcast from? Yeah, so you have to transmitters break into somewhere and become a squat. <laughs> so that was the first thing that we done. We got the money to buy a very very basic. So George funded it, and me and uh, Tosca re ran it as it were. And George had an engineer because he was also doing London Greek radio at the same time. And um, so he had, we had an engineer which could make the transmitters and we we went and found a squat to stay in which was uh, just up the road actually in Charlton and then with the engineer we found a place to put the aerial. Then it was about recruiting the DJs and that was about kind of talking to everybody that was kind of what I'd worked with which kind of you know was quite a big array then so everyone from Carl Cox to um, Nicky Holloway to um, obviously Paul Anderson God rest his soul yeah. and everybody else. We got all this together, and lo and behold, um, we set up a, a radio station, and it didn't have a name for quite a while, because I didn't want to call it Kiss, because it's so much like Kisses, Yeah. but every every name I came up with didn't sound as good, and also there was a, there was a radio station called Kiss FM in New York, yeah. and I used to get tapes sent back for me, and I, I always wanted to have Kiss FM, I really kind of... I, if there was anything I could bring from New York, it would be Kiss FM, the radio station, because you had Tony Humphreys, you had Shep Pessibone, you had all these great mixers all doing their remixes and playing music and mixing all day long. And it was like, oh my goodness, I want that station. I was like, that's the station I want. And in the end, I went, it's got to be Kiss FM. It's just got to be. And we, we stole their logo, we stole <laughs> their jingles, we stole the whole lot. And um, we we went on air and... We were lucky because when we went on air, we had, oh goodness me, how long did we have? We had, um, we had about three months or two months where, because all the other stations had turned off to go for these community stations, so there wasn't any stations on. Right. 
which is a bit of luck. Yeah. More, more luck than planning, but if anybody asked me, I was planning. Five-year plan, mate. <laughs> um, <laughs> so they'd all turned off. Um, we went up on this rickety roof, which really nobody should ever have gone anywhere near. And this, so we, we put this massive crack of masks strapped to um, these uh, chimney pots. And um, we had, well, they couldn't take it down. It was, it was against health and safety <laughs> for them to, get, to take it down. So we was actually on air nonstop for about three months or so. Yeah. And it drove the authorities, the DTI who come out and bust you, it drove them absolutely mental. I mean, it drove them to, uh, anyway. And eventually they got themselves a, a, a turntable ladder fire engine which then went up and actually got this, um, got this down. So the, they knew the, where it was. Oh, they, they knew where they it was. Yeah. They just couldn't get up with it because it was too dangerous. <laughs> so once they got it down, that was it. They busted us every time they possibly could for the next couple of months. We were, as we turned on, 10 minutes, oh, not 10 minutes, but kind of a couple yeah, of hours later, because yeah. that's so what you hear when you run a pirate station. Yeah. That's what you hear, pshh. That means you've been busting. And they'd always be after the transmitter. Yeah, that's it. Go to the transmitter. Because we had a great engineer. So you'd have the studio in one place. Yeah. Then you'd have a midpoint. So you transmit from the studio to the midpoint in one frequency, from the midpoint to the main transmitter in another frequency, and then the transmitter out to the whole of London on 100 FM or whatever it is. And and they could never find... We never, ever had a studio taking touch wood. Yeah, I was going to say my next question was, <laughs> so the, the, what's the kind of secrecy that surrounded the, the location of the studio? Oh, don't. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, had, um, we had DJs. Every DJ um, in the three and a half years that we was pirate, because that's all that we was pirate for was three and a half years, um, the, the legend is so much bigger than the actual kind of real reality. Um, so after, after, a, after a year, I bought out, um, the other shareholders owned it all. And then what i done was I sold back to the DJs that had actually been working it. So I sold 45% of it back to them, um, at which kind of, you know, for, so Norman Jay and Tim Westwood and all these DJs, you know, yeah. uh, Cold Cuts, uh, Jonathan Moore and uh, Joey Jay, uh, you know, 10 or well, 9 uh, DJs that kind of wanted to buy 5% for £200 because I, I'd bought everybody else out but then I didn't have any money to actually um, buy any transmitters <laughs> so I thought right well, if I get 9 transmitters then at least I've got 9 weekends that I can actually transmit for and what happened was I had 9 other diaries and 9 other set of contacts and you know it just went that's when Kiss FM just went um, ballistic because all of a sudden these guys back in 1985 86 had paid £200 for 5% of this pirate station, and all of a sudden, they was protecting their interest. Yeah. And, you know, it was, a, it was an amazing time. It was a real camaraderie time with a whole lot of DJs and kind of... It, just, it was special. It was really special You time. guys against the system. That's it, because that's what we were. We were the sound of young London. We was, you know, we was an, an anarchy. We were kind of, yeah, crazy, yeah, all that <laughs> stuff. Um, and so it, it just it built steam from there. And then the perfect storm happened, really. Um, so by this point, it was um, nineteen. Uh, what was it? Nineteen eighty-six, eighty-seven, and over. I've always said that the eighties, just as a, a byline on this, the eighties was the most amazing year for music and different musics coming on. So you had at the beginning of the eighties, 
you had the leftovers from the disco. Then you had um, electro, you had hip hop, you had rare groove, you had um, R&B, kind of the first runnings of R&B as we know, kind of R&B now. And then you had this soulful house type music, the 10 city soulful house music. Then you had rave, then you had acid, then you had balearic. All of this all came in that 10 years. The, the roots of it all came within that 10 years. And that's just, that's about mentioning Go-Go, which happened early on in the year. You know, there was, there was such a variety. In it. it went from being very, very kind of um, soul or reggae or whatever back in the kind of 70s. So all of a sudden, being enriched with all these different styles of music under the one umbrella of kind of black music or soul or whatever. And you had this, this thing called house music, which created the perfect storm for us as, as Kiss anyway. Yeah. Let <sighs> <Can we> get <laughs> a breath. <laughs> what do you say, like you say, it was a massive um, period of change and creativity in terms of all those different genres. Mm. What do you think was driving that? Do you think it was the... Um, the electronics and equipment were becoming cheaply available and one one of the th one of the things was well one of the things was this new music came out and it started as type of 116 118 beats a minute which is kind of nitro deluxe and it, it it was kind of it was it started off as kind of hip hoppy type stuff um uh, electro and then it kind of turned into soulful house the 10 sissy stuff and the kind of the, the kim mazels and the kind of what and then it became house music. It, it got known as house music, and it was kind of, oh my goodness, there's going to be a house club. And, and all of a sudden, um, it, it done loads of different things. <laughs> it split Clubland in two because all of a sudden, people either wanted to go and hear house music or they wanted to hear, and it's taken years for that to change. So if you was into house, you just wanted to listen to house all night long. You did not want to listen to Luther Vandross or, um, you know, whatever. You just wanted to listen to house if you got into it. Rave came out of it and um, acid and all these different genres. But the one thing that it done was it split split the kind of whole club scene up so that everybody kind of was, um, anyone that wanted to see house was house. That was it. And then... The reason it was such a perfect storm for Kiss was that it was cheap to make, so it was, it was quite disposable, really. It was kind of because computers had come along, and you didn't have to go into a twenty-four track studio <laughs> to actually make a record. All of a sudden, you could sit at home on your computer and do it, and so it became it became cheap to do. It became disposable, and it gave a much broader set of people that have you know, style and kind of got something in there in their brains that they wanted to get out. And it just opened the whole market up, you know, whether it was a Damsky and Killer or <laughs> whatever it was, it just totally opened the whole scene up. And it made music kind of, there were so many different styles and types and everything else. And it was much faster. And it was because of ease, you know, because that played a part in it as well. And this is all part of the perfect storm. Ease were around. And there's also illegal raves. Oh, my goodness me. Where all of a sudden, one minute, everybody was down at Dingwalls to have a, you know, 500 people in a club. All of a sudden, there was 20,000 people in a, in a farm or something somewhere that were all going down the motorways listening to payphones and shit. <laughs> it was like, what the fuck fucking happen? And it, went, it happened overnight. Yeah. It was just, and it was huge. And it just it unleashed. And the... I, 
when Kiss became legal in 1990, we had money then. I had some money, and so I, I paid for um, I paid for some because I, I come from the old school soul ballads, and you know I couldn't understand this fucking house music <laughs> to start with. Although I love the soulful stuff, the the rave and all that, I just and uh, so I paid from for some. Um, uh, I paid for some um, research to be done of why is this music so popular and it came back that it's fast the last time that anything um, that had been a worldwide craze was that fast which was disco and it meant that white people could dance to it <laughs> now, that sounds really terrible <laughs> but it's true because white people aren't the greatest at dancing to slow R&B, soul and stuff like that but to house music and disco all of a sudden they could dance because it didn't matter what they'd done also if they zed off their nut it didn't matter what they'd done and it became it, it became accessible not just to a million people who like soul music but to 60 million people that were white and green and grey and black and brown and yellow and every colour under the sun that just wanted to dance for us and enjoy this new style of music. Yeah. And it became a, a, an epidemic. <laughs> it became just huge. And the other thing that I got researched was I couldn't understand. I could not understand. I was driving home from um, from Kiss FM in the early days and I phoned up Colin, um, Colin Favour, I think it was. I phoned up Colin Favour and I said, Colin, I said, can you tell that cleaner to get out of the studio while she's cleaning while you're on air? Because that's really not... He said, there's no cleaner in here. I went, what? He said, it's the record, Gordon. It's <laughs> like, oh, okay. All right, now I need to understand this. <laughs> and that's... So, <laughs> so I paid for this, this, this um, research. And um, it's because that generation that was making music and kind of creating this uh, electro or... Um, rave and stuff like that they'd grown up before you know in my generation when you when you picked up a telephone you went you went whereas with um the new technologies and it's all beeps and beep 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 and the and the microwave bing ding ding and people had grown up with electronic sounds and so it was just natural to put them into music gone from that analog to total digital that's it yeah i was like fucking serious it's like that's the reason because it's 125 beats a minute so white people can dance to it and it's all electronical music and that was it and it just became and you know and the cheapness of the equipment to make it meant that more creative brains could have access to it and so we was we was flooded with creativity and there's a whole you know it just it didn't cost four days in a 24 track studio 48 track studio or whatever it was like, yeah, your bedroom with a, with a computer and waiting for it to load up. Brilliant. <laughs> Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. <laughs> like, so during that period... Um, what was your brief to your DJs that you had on the station? Did you were they in charge pretty much of their own output, yeah. or were you telling yeah, them totally. to? No, no. So no. even though they were pushing this new sound, that was like the well, cleaner in the studio. Um, well, you, you were you, you were like, no, this is the way forward. Well, going going back to when it all first kicked off, which is in we were still on as a pirate. So eighty seven, eighty eight, we came off air. We had to come off air uh, January the first, nineteen eighty nine, to go for license. Yeah. But in those in those couple of years. It had gone from, you know, as I say, I keep saying 10 City because they're the kind of, yeah. they're, they're the benchmark, I think, of this soulful house music that came along to what became Balearic, um, you know, and Danny Ramplin, who was collecting um, independent soul music before, you know, for years before, all of a sudden discovered house music and Balearic and Ibiza and everything else and Nicky Holloway and so everybody. And all of a sudden, you know, Norman Jay, he, he started running a club called High on Hope and had gone from rare groove to playing house music. And it's like, what the, what's happening with the world? You know, it's, yeah. But it was, a, um, it was an amazing, exciting time because it was a new music and you couldn't help but like it, you know. And so everybody, everybody got to play what they wanted. So, you know, so this whole thing of Kiss FM back then, it wasn't about being told what to play. You know, as a pirate, it was about embracing what the DJs, because they were, I felt, they were the cutting edge of all DJs. Yeah. And if Trevor Nelson decided to play R&B and soul and whatever, he would play the cutting edge of it. Or if Judge Jules was playing house music, he was going to be playing the cutting edge of it, because he was doing Red Groove along with, you know, Shaken Finger Pop and Family Function. But, the, you know, so much of it changed. But it was because the whole the whole world was changing and there was this amazing new music that everybody yeah. wanted to play. And it was, it was so much of it. And there's so many variations of it as well. It's like... So even at that time, there was a feeling of revolution, not necessarily, not like looking back on it now, it was a revolution, obviously. But even at that time, you understood that you were participating in something that was this huge. I don't think that we realised really what, we, you know, kind of so many people have, you know, leave, have left Kiss back in the day and they went, when they look back, they go, my goodness me, what we had then, what, we, what we'd done, what we as parcel was just something so special and so huge that to actually um, be part of it was amazing. Um, and, you know, when you look back, it, it was because, you know, as I say, it was that's how we got the license. We, we, we rode the perfect storm because we had mass market because it was everybody was into house music. It was that, you know, the best thing that um, the, the politicians ever done was banned all night parties and everything because that made it all anti establishment. And we were we were high on the list of that one. We kind of 
We were fighting for the right to party day and night. We we ticked so many of the boxes and we had a really strong set of DJs and a strong set of followers that actually believed in what they was doing and were, you know, part of the whole change of it. They weren't the only people that changed it, but they were part of it all. So getting the license <laughs> kind of we had public demand on yeah, their side. Yeah, totally. So there, it was always the plan to take it legal. Um, was it just too much stress? <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah. When I started it up in 85, I thought, now I'm going to get this legal. <laughs> I just wanted to be a DJ on the radio and play my music, if the truth be known. That's all I've ever wanted to do. That's amazing. So, and no, no other bastard would let me go on, so I always create my own stations. <laughs> That's basically what's happened throughout my life. <laughs> Every time that I don't own a radio station, I go, oh, I, want to, I want to be on air. You need, need to get one to get back on air. <laughs> yeah, I need to build another radio station. <laughs> um, so just before you got that license, hmm. you were, uh, it, was, it was told that um, you had half a million listeners across the capital. Yeah. And obviously, uh, you know, I think you're only second to capital, capital radio at that time. <laughs> In the for evening stand, yeah, there's a lot of form filling that night. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, we, we had, listen... I read somewhere or somebody once told me in the radio thing that if you get one letter a week, that's worth X amount of thousand people. And we were getting 500 to 5,000, depending on what was going on every week. I mean, you know, this is when you, there was no emails. You know, the, yeah. you got to remember the, la- the, the digital landscape back then or the media landscape back then was so different to what it is now. And, you know, it was letters and we were doing mail outs. We were sending out our invites and going out and collecting names and putting them into a computer that had a, a screen with little green writing on it. Stuff like that, you know. This is this is um, the first mobile phone I had, which was about 1987, 88. Had this massive great battery on it. I swear it's why my arms are so long. It's like that and carrying record boxes. But yeah, I mean, it, it was a totally different landscape to what life is like now. I mean, yeah. it's it's ridiculous how different it is. Um, but it was it was the it was the um, the foundation for everything that was grown today. Yeah, we always. I mean, we was very popular. Yeah. But nobody really knew how many people were listening. It's kind of <laughs> you can't even tell these days in radio propaganda. <laughs> it's all propaganda. Um, so you went for the license mm-hmm. as a pirate. Part of that license application, you had to go off air. Like yeah. you said, the first of um, first January. Of January. 1989. So it's a long process. And then was it September 89? You'd lost out to yep. Jazz FM. We lost out to Jazz FM, which was like, what? Are you um, sure? <laughs> And then we found out how many MPs they had on their board. Winner, <laughs> that all worked out. So we, what we done was we went straight out and we lobbied um, everybody, and we went to every club, and we got them all signed petitions and do all that stuff. And um, they, the the radio authority at that point, came to me and they said, "Do not go back on air. Don't go back on air because there was such strong competition." I.e. There's a lot of people with a lot of money that were very upset that they didn't get the license. <laughs> um, the classic people were very upset. Lord Hanson was very upset and all these people. And we were kind of handing in our 10,000 signed letters and everything else. And um, they said, don't go back on there because we're trying to get another couple of... We think we've, we think we've identified a couple of new frequencies. <laughs> we went, well, okay then. So we didn't. We didn't go back on there. And we went for the two more licenses came up and we went for them and Lord Hanson got one of them and we got the other one. Um, and so we got that in the November or December, I think it was December. Yeah. Which was, well, it was, it was amazing. <laughs> if, there was, if there was ever a high point in my whole life, that was that and my daughter being born, probably yeah. the two high points of my whole life. 
and you know, two of the most two of the most world changing things that ever happened to me as well, because all of a sudden I'd gone from me and thirty mates in a pirate station, and yeah, we was backed by EMAP and yeah. Virgin and this, that, and the other, to being a, a big radio station that had a London-wide license and was worth millions, and it was kind of oh my goodness me. Wow. So, what was the main difference between uh, being a pirate and then being a fully legal entity? Paying tax. <laughs> <laughs> Paying tax, not having to run from. I mean, I, my my first wife, God bless her, I love her. Um, she, when we was doing the pirate stuff, we, I lived on the fifteenth floor in. Um, I think it was living in Walthamstow at the time. She had a flat in Walthamstow, so we, we were staying there. And because um, I used to say to the DJs, now when you come to the studio, when you go to the studio, you mustn't take a record box. You must take a, you know, like a laundry bag or a rucksack or kind of anything but a record box. You mustn't take this and you do do and all this stuff. One day I'm at home and uh, get a knock at the door and um, says, uh, "Is your is, is you Gordon McMahon? Yes, your wife here. Yes, could we speak to her, please?" So I said, "Yeah, of course, can." come in so they came in and they uh, said well, would you mind if we have a chat for on our own so I said yeah go on <laughs> and it turned out that one of the neighbours thought that I was running a prostitute <gasps> ring and that she was <laughs> she was a prostitute because every two hours another man turned up with a bag <laughs> and then he left in two hours and another one turned up and they thought that I hadn't came the poor girl but <laughs> so, so yeah we, we had some um, <laughs> she she never forgave me for that actually <laughs> <laughs> We're still friends, thankfully. Love Kim. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and then, so, and then, yeah, like you say, you were backed by EMAP, and yeah. then you know things Virgin started to get bigger and, and bigger. Well, that's it. We had to raise three and a half million pound. Uh, it was two and a half million in cash and another million in deep pockets. Um, and so, you know, to raise that, you go from kind of you know the majority shareholder to you know minority shareholder pretty quick. Um, but it was for the good of the station and to get it on and it was kind of, you know, so it was something that I just wanted to do. I just wanted to get a legal station on that played this music and it wasn't just another pop station somewhere being played or whatever. So it was a, it was a, a, a real a fight of love, you know, kind yeah. of to do this. And, you know, hey, we done it, which was really good. But, you know, it, <laughs> I, I came out of it in um 90 in 98 yeah so i was there for 13 14 years from sending up to getting it from what i call from pirates or plc and um people say oh you must have made millions and i've done very well out of it but i didn't i didn't come out as a multi-millionaire or anything like that and um i always say to people that i learned more than i earned but i did learn a hell of a lot because dealing with business culture structures and then once it was PLC, because it was all part of EMAP, because there was a power struggle going on. And all I really cared about was the music and kind of playing music and doing my show and kind of creating a, this platform for, and you know, as many platforms as possible, because I found throughout this whole journey that my, my skill or my, my love is to build brands and build, um, you know, kind of brand extensions. So, you know, kind of, it started with just Kiss and then there was kiss in manchester kiss up north then there's kiss tv there's kiss in the snow there's kiss in ibiza there's kiss everywhere kiss. and that's kind of that was my that was my skill and kind yeah. of honed that in and kind of, so i did learn a lot out of it all and created some great platforms for this music to be played on you know and, and to help bring the whole music on the creation of house music and how that grew and went in so many different ways and today it's you know, <laughs> I love the soulful house music. That's my kind of genre that yeah. I love. Um, but as soon as you start talking about minimal tech and deep this and black that and dark this and blah, blah, it's like, 
all I like is nice soulful house music. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But there is so much good stuff. And the, the beauty of house music now, you know, kind of seeing this whole journey come right the way through, um, is that there is such good vocals now and such good producers in house music now. You know, when you listen to Spen or um, some of his stuff on Quantize Records and the quality of the actual singing and some of the remakes that they've made... I actually prefer to the, you know, kind of um, to the actual originals. Well, I play quite a lot of house music now because it means I can play new music when I'm playing out. It's difficult to play to our audience new soul music, although it's getting a lot better now, but it's kind of, for a while, the new soul music or new R&B, was, it wasn't really playable. And so it's kind of now it's, it's changing the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. Which is good. Cool. Uh, yeah. So, um, but you can kind of come on to that. I suppose mm-hmm. I'll talk about my soul. Yes. Um, in a bit. Um, but I just wanted to ask you yeah, about, like, like you said, from private to PLC. That I suppose there's a lot of politics. PLC probably standing for politics in that sense. <laughs> um, it, what was going on in EMAP at the time? Um, and during that period, up until you left the station in '98, the DJs that you'd kind of seen come through the Kiss ranks in terms of like Danny Rampling, Judge Jules, Trevor Nelson had kind of defected to the BBC yeah uh, was that um did this hurt at the time or was this more of a justification of your talent spotting and nurturing when they first told when when Trevor first told me I was oh I'm so you know I was hurt but I got it because to go from a London white station you've got to remember back then there wasn't loads of national stations like there are today you know, a national station on FM, you you got to do that. You kind of, you know, you'd be, I'd be a wrong person if I went to them, no, you can't do that. You've got to do it. And what it done was it gave everyone at KISS a chance to get some new blood in, you know, the next tier, the kind of, the jumping Jack Frosts, the kind of, you know, the new, the next tier of people, get them in because we, we, we you know, otherwise you're just stuck with the same DJs all the time. So it was good that a lot of them did go to um, Radio 1. And yes, it made me go, well, at least I picked the right people. And, you know, I trained them up. And <laughs> I didn't do any of that. And basically what happened was I, I created a platform and I created a platform, put all these DJs on it and some of them rose to the top and done really, really well and others just disappeared. And that's really kind of, you know, I, ca- I, can't, I can't pull claim on doing any of... Yeah, Trevor, he's where he is today because of me, you know. <laughs> I created the platform, but he was the personality. He was the one that actually worked the game. And the same with all those guys. And, you know, it, I actually had, I'd done a show, I'd, I'd do a show on My Soul Radio. And it's called My Soul, My Life, My Music. And I get a, a, a DJ. So I've had Danny Ramplin, or I've had Bob Masters, and I had Dr. Bob Jones, and I had um, Judge Jules in last week. And really interesting. I mean, I've always loved Jules. We've always been, we've been mates for years. But to actually get him to talk on the radio about him and what he's done and what he does and everything else, quite phenomenal, really, what he's achieved. Yeah. You know, just from being a pirate DJ. <laughs> well, yeah, all these guys. And, you know, even what you're doing now at My Soul, um, the, you know, the list of DJs that you're working with now, mm. a lot of them hark back to... Yeah. The original Kiss lineup. Yeah, I mean Brandon Block, he's on with us. Yeah. Um, we've got um, Jazzy B, he's on with us. Yeah. We've got um, we've got a great American lineup as well. We've got David Harness, Josh Milan, um, DJ Spen. We've got Teddy Douglas. We've also got a whole load of the British, you know, the top British DJs. So we had Paul Anderson, obviously. Yeah. Cy says um, R- R- Remy. So that's uh, uh, Neil Pierce. Um, We've got Booker T, Peter Borg, 
Martin Lodge. We've got a really good roster of, you know, Richard Earnshaw, um, really good roster of kind of good jocks that are really solid on what they do. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Mark Knight. Yeah. Um, I mean, Mark Knight, who's not known really for Soulful House, has been doing a Soulful House show for us because that's his true love. That's where he started it all from. And, you know, he, he makes his money from doing the um, electronic or whatever it's called, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and does a, does a show for us, which is a, a, a Soulful House show. And it's brilliant. It's really kind of its top draw. And then we've got Ramsey and Fenn. We've got Jumping Jack Frost. Yeah. <laughs> we've got so many of the old jocks. Plus we've got Jazzy M because we've just started My House. So that's just an online service at the moment. So we've got Chrissy T, uh, Jazzy M. We've got um, Jeremy Braithwaite, um, Neil. We've got just the list goes on and on and on and on. And is this a reaction to um, those to targeting that audience that grew up listening to Kiss? Yeah. We're a post-kiss generation station. There you go. I <laughs> <laughs> should be in advertising. That's, yeah, no, we're a post-kiss generation station. So our audience is from 35 to dead. Because, <laughs> well, one thing I've done when I, when I researched all of this was that I found out that there's, there's kind of two audiences that listen to um, myself, for instance. One of them is the invisible audience that, you know, had their first um, E to something, that, you know, when Kiss was about and stuff like that. And somebody went to their first all day out and somebody went, you know, listening to the music that Kiss used to play. And so we play a lot of that and we got a load of those DJs on the air. And so we kind of... This, there's that audience that kind of and still go out you know they still go out to they don't go out every week to a club just to stand in a club they'll go out to events but they'll go out to something that's special or something and then you've got the invisible audience which kind of you know they went out and done all that but they don't go out anymore but they like to hear music from when they was doing all those things and just having to remember so we've got two audiences and the ones that go out are the ones that don't get old. They will always just keep going out and doing what they're doing. You know, they're like an artist that will just keep on playing, keep on going and gigging, and one day they'll pass away. But they'll do it because they love doing it until they die. And, you know, kind of it's... They, they won't do it as long, they won't do it as fast, they won't do it as, you know, as, as many times in a week, but they'll still do it. And it's kind of they do it because they love the music. And it's the first time um, that we can find in history... The, the 60, and I've done a big speech um, about this just recently um, to an advertising agency and um, about, you know, 50 is the new 30, you know, kind of there, there's this, they've got money, they, they still enjoy going out. You, I could take you between May and the end of um, October, September, I could take you out every single day and take you to a place where a 45 plus audience is partying, whether it's, um, I mean, there's Portugal last week, the week before that, there was um, Cavos before that, we had Brighton Beats at the weekend, we've got Sunsea Beat coming up, we've got, what's the one that's on there at the moment, um, Portugal, um, there's Salou coming up, there, there's so many events for this age group because they actually do just like still going out the audience is there the audience is there and if it wasn't then you know it'd be finished yeah yeah (laughs) so um it's a whole new and i love being part of this i love the technology of today i love the kind of the music and it's kind of and i'm 59 years old i'm gonna be one of those that (laughs) i'll just keep keep going going, and all of a sudden i won't be there (laughs) where is he is he not turned up oh he died (laughs) shame <laughs> so, but if you could so if you could do it all again would you do it any differently at all 
Um, I probably wouldn't get married as many times. <laughs> I wouldn't give all my wealth away. So <laughs> um, I mean, I've loved both, all three of my wives I love, but <laughs> only one at a time. Um, no, I, I would not do it all. I probably would do it all again. Um, I, th I think it's been an amazing journey. And I think that if, you know, they say, oh, if you knew now what you, you know, kind of, if you knew then what you know now, you wouldn't fucking do half of it. So it's no use doing that, you know, because if you knew all the pitfalls and everything that might happen, you probably wouldn't do it. And so doing it without knowing that and going, I just want to do this, you know, it's kind of, I want to do this, I want to move forward with this, um, makes you do it. Whereas if you knew how many pitfalls there could be and how many things could go wrong and how many, and it's like, no, you just got to look at the positive side of it all. Yeah, and just share that passion with everyone. Yeah. It is, and that's that's what it's all about. It's a <laughs> myself and Roy, Roy the Roach, Roy Marsh, who's been a, a, a very long time friend of mine. And we were sitting down some years ago, and we should have done the book really. And it's called "Why Does Winning Feel So Shit?" And it was all about because for years, from you know the seventies, people like myself, him, the DJs that love this dance music, black music, um, soul music, whatever you know, whatever you want to call it. <coughs> So we, we all loved it for all these years and um, we wanted everybody to hear it. We wanted everybody to know it. We wanted everybody to love it. We wanted it to be the majority of the things in the charts. We wanted it to be all of this, all, you know, kind of. And that's what we, you know, kind of, when you play a record as a DJ and you drop a record and, that you love, you know, I mean, Dennis Ferrer, you know, kind of just a, a, a magic song, whether it's Hey Hey or whether it's... What's, what's one that I actually... Oh, we we'll talk about that. It's uh, How Do I Let Go. How Do I Let Go. Yeah. You drop that in one of our kind of do's and it's it's a guaranteed, happy, good, um, uplifting song that everybody goes, yes, to and dances. You drop that, that's better than doing drugs. You know, it's kind of that... The buzz that you get from that is such a better buzz than actually doing drugs. It's just a... a, a an uplift it's wonderful and that's why we do it so anyway so me and Roy so we've been promoting this music all our lives and everything else and um, when Kiss got legalised and 70% of the charts was either house or it was soul or it was R&B or whatever it is our music what we called our music came under the umbrella of our music and um, the one thing that we hadn't worked out was that as soon as anything becomes big and all that the big companies take over it and bastardise it all <laughs> you know, well, as soon as as soon as you see the first you know Rare Groove is all about finding records you couldn't get and then all of a sudden there's Rare Groove 1 Rare Groove 2 Rare Groove 3 albums <laughs> and it's like just groove <laughs> that's <laughs> not rare that's not rare anymore yeah. <laughs> and you know that that kind of we hadn't worked that bit out that actually kind of um, letting everybody know about it and getting what we wanted sometimes isn't always the best fucking thing because somebody else is somebody with money is going to come along and bastardize it <laughs> and sell it to everyone. But anyway, um, so uh, to, we've spoke, we've just talked about a couple of tracks. Mm -hmm. um, to what we do at House Culture with these podcasts is we can't necessarily play the tracks in a podcast that we mm -hmm. talk about, but we always get our guests to choose five tracks based on a few different themes that we can add in a Spotify playlist that they uh -huh. can search out. It's called a perfect playlist. So we've already got loads of tracks in there from our other interviewees. And obviously I've like teed you up for this. But um, first one is The Catalyst. What was the one track that got you into dance music? Well, I mean, the one, the one record which just stood out so much was Eva Millie and My Boy Lollipop because that had such a massive influence on me, my family, because... 
my family would have a party at the drop of a hat. So my family would, you know, kind of, somebody's sort of, my birthday's next week, let's have a party, yay, let's get the records out, you know, kind of. So that was one of the records, which was a massive track, that and uh, Michael Jackson, I uh, Want You Back, that's another one which was kind of huge and real kind of, massive tracks um, floor fillers yeah well i mean yeah we're coming to floor fillers um in terms of like house music specifically what was uh, you mentioned tensity yeah. a lot um, I, I love tensity yeah i just yeah, love the, the 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 combination of their voices the combination of their musical the productions the production yeah. everything about tensity and those first couple of albums and the first, just to me that was the beginning of something so special yeah that really was and because myself and paul anson was pretty you know close and so he always used to go what, what about this one there's a remix and there's a da-da. and I, I used to be a sounding board for him for so much of that music and that 10 sissy was kind of my that was my turning point into my god i love this new music it yeah. is kind of this is this is something special. Well, it's almost like the fusion of like gospel-esque yeah. singing with, you know, these electronic Byron beats. Stingley, yeah. get up, you know. Byron Stingley, get up. I mean, that yeah. is just yeah. another track. Yeah. Which I, just, I, can, I never, ever, ever get tired of it. Yeah. I never, ever get tired of it. You and know? if you had to pick one Tensity track, what would it oh, be? Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you spotlight. very much. <laughs> uh, you didn't tell me it's Sorry. investigative journalism. Uh, well, um, no, I suppose... It's the um, way love is, I, 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 yeah, I think. I, do you know right. what? I'd have to agree with you on that one. That one, Devotion. Um, yeah. oh, there's so many of them. I've really put you on the spot. You I'm really sorry. have, yeah. That's the way we love is, is a wonderful that. track. Yeah. In fact, just put all the arms on. <laughs> <laughs> I'll put them all on. Um, okay, so, yeah, you've already mentioned this one, Floor Filler. Um, mm. How Do I Let Go? How Do I Let yeah, Go? Yeah, it's... Israel stunningly soulful tune and just every time you play it in you know our circuit or my circuit where our dj it's just it's just a floor for it. it's just one of those that kind of everyone sings to everyone knows everybody feels it's a feel good feeling it's a, just a it's just a great record that is just that's one of my all-time ones another one of his hey 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 ah that one just Anyway. Yeah, it's um, got that real, that real soulful, almost seventies feeling yeah. to it. Yeah, yeah, no, it has. It's got it's a rawness to it. And yeah, I, I love that about that. Um, but there's all you know, <laughs> there's so many um, great tracks out there. And it's, I was actually having a look at um, my house. Kind of, um, I've, I've got a kind of a, a short list, as it were, <laughs> of house music, which is probably about two thousand tracks, which is kind of the 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 top of the top. And it, it just goes on and on and on. There's just so much good music there, you know. Whether it's, um, whether it's stuff that, um, danced by, you know, modern, more modern stuff danced by um, Louis Vega, or whether it's, um, old stuff like Masters at work, you know, with Louis Vega again, but yeah. kind of the older stuff, or CC, um, CNC Factory when they done some of their stuff. There's just some really, really amazing tracks out there, and that's just one little, one little kind of corner of it. There's so much music and kind of just trying to pick one yeah is a thank you very much (laughs) (laughs) well it's like the people that you play to as well i think the audiences uh have this whole knowledge and appreciation of Mm. history and current as well so i think you'll find older people rubbing shoulders with younger people yeah and they'll both know that same track from you know way back when yeah that version of gregory paul's 1960 what 
um, by Opelopo, the remit just that is just amazing. It's sort of it's housey, but it's also it's jazz and it's kind of it's just got so much in it. And speaking of kind of jazzy soul stuff, um, your sunsetter mm. Roy Ayers. Yeah, everybody, everybody loves, loves the, the sunshine. sunshine. Yeah, that's and that's. I like the house version of that. Yeah, um, which you know, there's a there's a great smooth mix of that which I love playing. But if you're going for the sunset and you just want that record, yeah. it's either that or what they used to play. I used to always love uh, Mambo when used to be at Mambo in Ibiza, and just as the sun went down, they play Simon and Garfunkel, "Hello Darkness, My Old Friend," and it was just that was. That was just the perfect, hello darkness, my old friend. And it was just the perfect thing for when that sun went down and then they'd bring in a really soulful house track and it'd be like, yeah, that's... That's what it's all about, those yeah. moments. And everybody loves the sunshine is the one that does it for me. I just, uh, yeah, you, even the beginning of that, it just you can feel the heat almost <laughs> from it. It's it. dripping in sunshine. Amazing. Um, okay, so the tearjerker, what, uh, yeah, what so track? This isn't really a tearjerker. This is, a, it's... It's an emotional track. I'll tell you what this track is to me. And it's, it has to be the original version. It mustn't be the kind of the remix or anything. Um, it's Pevan Everett, who I think is one of the best vocalists on the house music scene. I think he's one of the best vocalists, full stop. But, you know, kind of, he is a real gift to house music because some of the stuff he's made have just been amazing. And Feeling You In And Out is one of those that, whether you're laying there at five o'clock in the morning on your kind of, you know, in your bed or wherever, and it's like it's you can still play that even though it's 120 odd beats a minute, but it is just such a, uh, it's emotional. It's it's a sex it's a sex song, it's a kind of off your nut song. It's a kind of if you're out by the swimming pool and it's played. I played it over in Ibiza two years ago, and um, just as a random oldie. And it just brought the whole house down. It's just, and I can never ever stop getting used. I, I can't, I can't get tired of it. Just never get tired of it. I can play it and play it and play it, and it just holds something special for me. But yeah, feeling you in and out the original version, because his voice on it is just ah. Oh, I wish I had a voice on it. Uh, it's just testament to. Uh, I'm getting emotional uh, now. <laughs> Yeah, testament to a great track. If you if you can play it over and over and listen to it a million times and still mm. appreciate it, it's and that I can. That is just one of those that you just uh, special. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I want to play it now. <laughs> okay, so the last tune. It's the end of the night. The crowd are asking for screaming for one more. Yeah, do you choose something that? Um, <laughs> from a disco house music sense in terms of like representing your set or do you choose something from left field left field yeah totally left field if it's a, if it's a wedding or something stupid like that it's, it'd be always look on the bright side of life <laughs> and and if it's if it's anything to do with you know club land or any of the clubs we do or whatever Ray Charles hit the road jack just perfect. just it's, it's perfect because it's telling everyone to fuck off but you know in a good way <laughs> in a really nice kind of way and it's a great song I mean, it, it stands the test of time and it's kind of it's it's got it's steeps in soulful uh deep soulful singing um just in every part of it it's just wicked so yeah, yeah no it's always and i'll finish i'll usually finish with that or um the reggae version of it by prince Bust, uh, prince jazzbo yeah 
There's a brilliant scene. If you've seen Ray the film, there's the brilliant scene where he's yeah. writing that song and then it cuts to him performing it. And um, his his girlfriend, That's she's right. the backup singer, That's and she's it. really like Hates giving him. it to him. <laughs> yeah, and it's yeah, it's a brilliant scene. I love uh, that. I, I just think that that is it, it just sums up. I, I love all musics, um, but that to me is just something. Yeah, I think he was a, he was a master. Yeah, yeah. I'm not the only one. <laughs> Quite a few people thought he was as well. <laughs> um, and so finally, just to kind of wrap up um, us as kind of house culture, mm-hmm. and you see, so as we've just talked about, you've been massive in the scene and promoting this music across illegal radio station, um, a fully licensed station, events, the whole lot. And um, what does this culture mean and represent to you as a whole? Do you feel like you've had a big part of pushing it or just been lost in amongst events that have been happening? Um, I think I think I'm too modest sometimes. Um, I think that the stations that I've been involved with have played a very, very big part in it. It's not they're not they didn't play the ultimate part in it because the 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 whole is more than, you know, all the bits and pieces as it were. So we played a part. And so I I, th- I like to think that I've actually had a hand in actually trying to enable this music to gain the notoriety but you know it's it's not just not just one radio station it's the whole world it's the it's the people that write it the people that sing it the people that produce it it's the people that love it the people that buy it it's the people that kind of play it in the clubs on the radio but not just you know my run radio station but all around the world and everything so you know it, it, i like to think that i've been i've had a hand in helping it along um, and my reward for that is that uh, I've had a lifetime of great music, and that's what I love. I love music, and so that you know, which is the whole reason I do all this craziness. Or so I started up another couple of radio stations. So don't forget my soul, M I hyphen soul dot com, or my soul on DAB in your town in London, Brighton, Manchester. Get the plug in. <laughs> It'll be edited out later. <laughs> Plus we got myhouse dot com. Yeah, so M I H O U S E. Um, yeah, so I, I, I like to think that kind of I've had a part to play, but I don't think anybody's been the ultimate. You know, it, it's not down to any one person. The people buying it and appreciating it and dancing to it, and you know, kind of, it's it's it's, it's such a it's a circle of kind of uh, creativity, and it's wicked. But I love just being able to play it all. <laughs> That's my thing, and I love being able to go get get the occasional one that kind of nobody's got, as any good DJ should. Yes, <laughs> that's right. Perfect. I think that's the yeah. Alan, ten minutes. Yeah, yeah time to fuck really off. Good. Let's go and get a cup of tea. Yeah. House culture. That was great, wasn't it? Gordon is a real legend, and I hope you enjoyed listening to him talk about his life as a music lover, the ducking and diving involved behind the scenes of the creation of Kiss FM and his thoughts on dance music culture, something he's had a big hand in creating. And if you're a fan of that, make sure you tune into Gordon's current baby, which is My Soul Radio. That's MI-Soul Radio, and that's available on DAB in London, Brighton, Manchester and Glasgow, or online at mi-soul.com. Or if you're listening to this podcast, you probably love your house music, right? Well, Gordon's got you covered there as well with the recently launched sister station that is My House Radio. You can listen to that online at mi-houseradio.com. It's a banging listen. I highly recommend that one. 
As always, you can find the tracks that we discussed on House Culture's Perfect Playlist on Spotify. So make sure you search for that and follow it to keep yourself up to date with the choices from all of our podcast guests. Again, that's House Culture Perfect Playlist on Spotify. And this time around, I'd like to personally thank Gordon for adding some real soulful touches to our playlist. However, that Heaven Everett track we chatted about, Feeling You In and Out, is not on Spotify. Make sure you seek it out as it is a real gem that won't disappoint. Then once you're done doing that, please love this podcast, like it, tweet it, share it, tell your friends about it and maybe leave us a review. You could always get you a shout out on a future episode. And this time around, I'd like to say hi to Bob O'Meara on Instagram, who got in touch to say that Barefoot in the Head, the one we discussed with a man called Adam Sally Rogers, was a proper track. Yes, Bob, you know that. And if you listeners haven't heard that Sally Rogers episode, what are you waiting for? It's available in our back catalogue right now. Also, if you want your daily fix of all things house culture, hit up our Instagram feed at housecultureNet or follow the hashtag TrueHouseCulture. And finally, you can reach out to me, Matt Rouse, directly on Instagram at DJ Matt Rouse. Thanks for listening. See you next time. House Culture. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.